The word authority is a word that's unpopular in our society today. It seems that we are more distrustful, more suspicious, more anti-authority today than in previous generations. And in some ways this is understandable with the inventions of things like global news and social media and the internet, misuses of authority, abuses of authority that we would not maybe have known a generation ago are now known around the world. We can know about abuses of authority that exist literally on the opposite side of the world among people that perhaps we have no communication with or contact with at all. And this is not necessarily a bad thing. There seems to be an increased accountability for those who are in authority today. So it's hard to know if abuses of authority are actually on the rise in, let's just say, the Western world today, or if it's just that we have access to more information about abuses of authority. But either way, this increased awareness, this increased accountability, I think, is movement in the right direction. But at the same time, with access to so many examples of abuses of authority, it can lead us to think that authority itself is a bad thing. As broken people born into a fallen world, we don't need any more encouragement to dislike the idea of authority. I mean, the idea of authority itself runs counter to our fallen brokenness into which we are born as people who are bent out of shape by sin. We are born not liking authority. We are born wanting to be completely independent and autonomous individuals ourselves. So any knowledge about misuses or abuses of authority can only fuel some of that passion to think that the answer is that all authority is bad. But in the Bible, authority is actually a good thing. Yes, authority can be used for evil, and we see examples of that in our history. We see examples of that all around us in our culture today. We see examples of misuses of authority in the Bible, even in our text this morning. But authority itself is designed by God. Right, healthy, godly authority is a blessing. The Bible is clear that Children are blessed by the godly authority of their parents. The Bible is clear that churches are blessed by the the stewarding, the godly and right stewarding of biblical authority by elders and leaders in the church. The Bible is clear that people and, and nations are blessed by the right stewarding of godly authority by her leaders. And this kind of right, healthy authority contrasted with abuses of authority are seen vividly in our text this morning. 
In fact, that's what our text this morning is all about. It's about a clash of authority between a synagogue ruler and the Son of God. And at the center of this clash is a woman with a physical need, a woman whose life is changed even as the intentions and the motivations of Jesus' enemies are exposed for what they truly are. So, as you can see from verse 10, this text opens with Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The word of the Lord says in verse 10, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Just so that we're all on the same page, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, Saturday. It was a day blessed and made holy by God in Genesis chapter 2 as a day when God rested from all his creating work. In fact, according to the Old Testament law, the people of God were to make a distinction between the Sabbath and the rest of the week by worshiping and by resting on the Sabbath. God told his old covenant people in Exodus chapter 20 that they were to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. God said, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So it's important to know how significant Sabbath worship was. Otherwise this text doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. But also note that he is teaching in the synagogue. The synagogues were Jewish centers of religion and education and worship. They were a bit like maybe a small storefront church and Christian school kind of combined into one for Jews at Jesus' day. In fact, the synagogue, if you're wondering, well, I don't really see much about the synagogue in the Old Testament. It's because synagogues kind of rose to prominence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were invented, so to speak, during the time after the first temple was destroyed and before it was rebuilt. In fact, synagogues ever since the fall of Judah in 586 BC were significant because the Jewish people were scattered all over the known world. They couldn't, even after the temple was rebuilt, make it back to the temple. And so the Jews would gather together and they would establish synagogues in local communities and in cities and in towns. They were like mini franchises of the temple, so to speak. And that's where Jesus is at. Look at verse 11. As Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So here's Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he sees a woman who has some sort of condition whereby she can't stand up straight. We don't know what her condition is exactly. In fact, the Greek word for disabling 
here in verse 11 is also translated weakness. It's the same word. And clearly, she has some sort of problem that keeps her from standing up straight, and she has had this disability for 18 years. Can you imagine what her life would have been like for these 18 years? Some of you have suffered with a disability for 18 years, some less, some longer. You know what it's like to to wake up every day feeling limited by your disability or feeling as though other people are looking at you or other people are talking about you. Other people are pitying you, perhaps. Maybe she knew the ridicule of those around her who would have seen that she was different. I wonder if they had nicknames for her, derogatory things they called her behind her back or maybe even to her face. Whether you've had a a disability for 8 or 18 or 88 years, you know how discouraging it can be. In fact, it's possible that after 18 years of this disability, this woman's identity is wrapped up in her disability. In fact, she may have even been known as the woman with the disability, the hunchback. And so for 18 years, she's looked at the ground because she can't stand up straight. But today, that is all about to change. If it's If you're taking notes this morning, and this is helpful, we're going to walk through this text looking primarily at three words, and they all begin with C, three C words. First, I want us to notice the compassion of Jesus Christ, his compassion. And this compassion is really on display in at least four different ways. In this text. First, notice that Jesus sees this woman. Now, we don't know how many people were present in the synagogue, but there is obviously a decent sized crowd, as we can see from verse 17. There's a crowd of people who are rejoicing in what Jesus has done. But amid all of these people, and even amid all of the people that may have been seeking Jesus or may have even needed a touch from Jesus or needed something from Jesus, Jesus sees this woman. Just look at the beginning of verse 12 as Luke records for us, when Jesus saw her, he called her over. When Jesus sees this woman, he doesn't just see her condition. He obviously notices her condition, but later in verse 16, he calls her a daughter of Abraham. He doesn't just see that this is a woman who has some sort of problem. This is a woman who needs something from him. This is a woman who's not quite right. No, he looks through that and he sees that her true identity as someone who is made in the image of God, someone who belongs to the people of God as a child of Abraham. He sees her for who she truly is, not for her disability. I think even as we are reminded of the way that the Son of God works, seeing people for who they are, seeing us for who we are, there's also a lesson for the church here, isn't there? We would be people who see 
those around us as God sees them. Secondly, notice Jesus speaks to this woman. Again, verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Jesus speaks to this woman, which may not seem overly noteworthy to us, but in first century culture, it was not uncommon for men to completely ignore women in public, but not Jesus. Jesus sees this woman, and then he speaks to her. I would have loved to have known what her response was in that moment. Me? talking to me? Like, you want me to come over? The Messiah, the, the rabbi, is speaking to me? And Jesus speaks to her. Third, notice the compassion of Jesus in that he touches her. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. Jesus touches her. The compassion of Jesus is on full display here. As he sees this woman for who she truly is, as he speaks to her, as someone made in the image of God, and as he touches her. And perhaps there were those in the synagogue that day who were thinking, Jesus, don't touch her. Do you have any idea what's wrong with her? Do you have any idea how she might impact you? How she may make you ceremonially unclean because she is not right? Don't waste your time on her. For 18 years, she's been like this. Give your time. Give your attention to others. But Jesus touches her and forth. Notice Jesus heals her. Immediately, she is made well. There is no doubt about Jesus' power. No doubt that she is healed. Immediately, she is made straight. And then, she does what so many do when their life is changed by Jesus Christ. Notice verse 13, and she glorified God. And maybe she started talking about how great God is. Maybe she broke out into song about the goodness and the kindness of Yahweh. Maybe she started praying, thanking God for his healing power. Maybe she grabbed hold of the hands of Jesus and now fully able to stand up, fully able to look full into his wonderful face, she wept tears of joy, thanking God in the flesh, the one standing in front of her for this undeserved act of grace. Regardless of what exactly she said, notice that she clearly knew this was an act of God. She glorified God. This woman may or may not have been highly educated. She may or may not have known all the prophecies about the coming Messiah and the healing that he would bring. But with one touch from Jesus, she knew that this man standing in front of her was no ordinary Galilean man. This was God. And he was known through his compassion. 
the compassion of Christ. The second big thing to notice this morning, the second C word, is contrast. Contrast. There are three different contrasts we see here that I would direct your attention to. First, notice the contrast between this woman and the synagogue ruler. Verse 14. Jesus has just healed this woman. She's made straight. She's glorifying God, which is exactly in its right context, understood rightly, what the synagogue was to be about, was to be about the glorification of God, the people of God gathering together to to glorify and honor and praise and worship God. And this is precisely what's happened here on this particular Sabbath day. But notice the response of the synagogue ruler. But the ruler, verse 14, of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people. And he turns to the crowd. There are six days in which work ought to be done Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So he says this to the crowd. It's almost as though he turns away from from Jesus and from this woman. Lest anyone else be healed. Lest anyone else actually experience the liberating power of God from Satan. And he says, hey, there are other days in which to be healed come back then. This is not what the Sabbath is about. Verse 15, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. The contrast between this woman and the synagogue ruler could not be bigger. One is a religious elite, the other is a woman with a disability. One likely walked with his head held high in the community, enjoying the status and the favor of all the people, and the other was consigned to walk bent over looking at the ground. And yet one is called by the Holy Son of God a daughter of Abraham, and the other is called a hypocrite. If you remember last couple of weeks ago, we talked about hypocrites. Jesus accused the Jews of hypocrisy in his day. They were able to look at the sky, Jesus said. You recall from verses 54 following in chapter 12, and understand the coming weather patterns, and yet they failed to discern the signs of the times all around them, signs that Jesus is the Messiah, signs that would have let them know that the opportunity to turn and believe in Jesus would not last forever, that there was a coming day when all would stand before the Lord. So they were to see the signs as we are to see the signs and turn and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And now here, Jesus accuses this synagogue ruler and the others with him of hypocrisy. Why? Well, essentially because of their double standard. They think nothing of unbinding their animal and leading them to food and water, even on the Sabbath. And yet they fail to see the need of this woman to be unbound 
from Satan. And when she is unbound, they respond as though she is less than their ox or their donkey. I wonder even if it's one of the reasons perhaps Jesus refers to her very directly as a daughter of Abraham. Perhaps not only to remind this woman of her true identity, but also to accuse the synagogue ruler and the others who looked with indignation on what Jesus has just done, that they are not viewing this woman as a daughter of Abraham. It's sort of like when the woman in Luke chapter 7 comes to Jesus and anoints Jesus, remember the sinful woman. There's indignation around the room at what was going on, especially among the Pharisee who had Jesus over. And you remember Jesus says to the Pharisee, Simon, do you see this woman? Because he had seen her. She was a sinner. But he didn't truly see her. Nor did the synagogue ruler on this day. Here they are, the synagogue ruler and the other Jewish religious leaders, they were supposed to be shepherding the flock of God, and yet they have become so enamored with their extra regulations and extra rules that go far beyond the Old Testament teaching that they reject the humanity of this daughter of Abraham. You see, it's important for us to understand that Jesus broke no Old Testament command by healing this woman on the Sabbath, not a single one. And yet, by Jesus' time, by the time of this event, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had created dozens and dozens of extra commands. They took the borders that marked out the Old Testament commands of God and they expanded them all the way to the horizon. And in the process, their hearts grew cold toward the very mission of God in this world, which is redeeming the captives and giving recovery of sight to the blind and proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come. But this woman, this beautiful daughter of Abraham, she got it. She saw Jesus and she glorified God. That's one contrast, the woman and the synagogue ruler. Another contrast that we should see in the text is between Jesus and the synagogue ruler. The primary responsibility of the synagogue ruler was to interpret the law of God. His role was to study and to know the Old Testament and then to teach the people of God to know the Old Testament as well. He was to apply it. He was to interpret the law of God into the present context. That's not what he was doing. But what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is not simply interpreting the law. He's not simply saying, this is what you should or should not do on the Sabbath. Rather, Jesus is fulfilling what the Sabbath is all about, which is rest in God, reconciliation to God, release from the effects of sin by the work of God. He is truly the Lord of the Sabbath. 
And in healing this woman, he is embodying for all those who will watch, all those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive, that this is what the Sabbath is. And this is why the Sabbath ruler is indignant. That's a significant word in verse 14. He is indignant. As he looks down his nose at Jesus and at this woman and at what has just taken place. The word there can also mean irritation. He's irritated by this break of decorum in the synagogue. Again, not a break of God's law. A break of his preferences, his opinions, his ideas. He's looking with judgment on Jesus for doing what he thinks ought not to be done on the Sabbath. But look at Jesus' response to him in verse 15. Luke, who writes this for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't write in verse 15 that Jesus answered him which would be true. The Holy Spirit leads Luke to write, then the Lord answered him. Even as this synagogue ruler was trying to assert his own authority, given his man-made rules and regulations about the Sabbath, Luke wants us to see, he wants it to be very clear that this synagogue ruler is not the one in authority. That any authority he had was a misused authority here in this context. But there is one with authority. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is in control. He has authority of the Sabbath. It really is all about him. And this whole exchange between Jesus and the synagogue ruler is about authority. Who has the authority to define what is right and proper on the Sabbath? The synagogue ruler with all his fence laws and extra commands or the Lord, God himself in the flesh. You see, Jesus is cleansing the synagogue even for its rightful use. In a way, he's cleansing the Sabbath for its rightful use use. He is showing everyone who will see and listen what the Sabbath is about. It's about God freeing people made in his image through the gospel of Jesus Christ to be who God created them to be, which is image bearers of their creator, people in whom God's saving work is displayed. But this synagogue ruler is a roadblock to that, is a hurdle to that. Not a hurdle that stops Jesus, limits Jesus, slows Jesus down. But this should give us pause to ask, am I a hurdle to someone who is struggling to embrace Christ? Do I, through my extra biblical opinions or ideas, somehow prove a hindrance to those who are trying to understand Christ, who are trying to see Jesus? Am I more concerned with my traditions and preferences than I am with obedience to the Lord? 
by being used by him to free those who are in bondage to sin or the enemy. If you remember two weeks ago, we saw when we looked at Luke 12, 49, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will divide people. It will attract those who are chosen by God, and it will repel those who love their sin and love the darkness. But even as we prepare for the gospel to divide, friends, we must always be careful that we are not the ones who are being divisive. If the gospel that we believe and the gospel that we proclaim and the message of Scripture that we wholeheartedly embrace and communicate and teach and live according to divides, then so be it. We should frequently ask, is it the gospel, is it the word of God that is divisive or am I just being divisive? We will not be liked by everyone because we belong to Jesus, but let's keep watch over ourselves and let's, church, keep watch over one another lest any division that comes about or pushback that we experience is actually not because of the gospel and not because of Christ and not because of his word, but simply because of us. In fact, this is why Jesus would say to the Jewish Religious leaders of his day in Luke eleven forty six, woe to you, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You add all these extra rules, all these extra regulations, all these extra extra biblical expectations on people, you load them down, and then you simply walk away and move on to load someone else down, and you don't lift one finger to help them, to share with them the grace and the kindness of Christ whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so we've seen this contrast between Jesus and the synagogue ruler, between the woman and the synagogue ruler. And also notice the contrast between Jesus' adversaries and the crowd. Look at verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus had adversaries. I know that's not like crazy news. But Jesus had adversaries. In fact, Jesus had outright enemies. I know that's not controversial, but if all we knew about Jesus today is what we pieced together about him from our culture, we would think that Jesus was this dispassionate man who wandered Palestine as a sort of like first century hippie, offering up different, you know, kind words of encouragement, helping people feel better about themselves, this positive, encouraging Galilean man who just wanted everyone to feel good about themselves. But people like that don't have enemies. People like that certainly don't have enemies who see to it that they are executed. And that's exactly what will happen to Jesus. 
but not on this day. On this day, his enemies are put to shame. On this day, their cover is blown, and their selfishness and their double, double standard was seen for what it was, and they are put to shame. Like when truth comes, it exposes things for what they really are. Jesus exposes them. He tells them, everyone knows that you untie your donkey or your ox and you lead it to food and water. Yes, even on the Sabbath day. How much more should this daughter of Abraham with worth and value and dignity be unbound from her bondage to the enemy? Yes, even on the Sabbath. And Jesus exposes people's priorities and agendas In fact, later, people will walk away from Jesus because he no longer gives them the show that they want. He exposes the fact that they only followed Jesus because he gave them physical food to eat or because he would do some extraordinary miracles. Their priority, he made clear, was entertainment. When we truly see what Jesus did and taught, we can see him exposing the priorities and the agendas of people all the time. And yet notice all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that Jesus was doing. It's likely that some of these who rejoiced on this day would perhaps be some of the same ones who would call out for his execution just a short time later. But on this day, Jesus' enemies were put to shame and the crowds rejoiced at all that Jesus was doing. This leads us to our third and final C word this morning, and it is Christ. In fact, this is really the word that kind of pulls these other two words, compassion and contrast, together. Because the point of this entire narrative is not so that we would sit back and question the role of disabling spirits today or the role of Satan today or that we would see how bad the Jewish religious leaders were or even that we would see how much Jesus loves people. The ultimate point of this narrative is Jesus. The point is that we would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The point is that we would have assurance, as Luke writes in chapter 1, about the gospel. Remember, that's his thesis statement. I'm writing so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught about Jesus. And now, Luke is writing so that they and we would have certainty that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And he is doing only things that God in the flesh can do. That he is fulfilling the very mission statement that Jesus provides for his ministry at the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. When he comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Luke tells us, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And now Jesus is doing that very thing. He is setting the captives free. He's giving recovery of sight, spiritual sight even, to the blind. He's laying bare things for what they truly are. Because he is Christ. Again, the point of narratives like this are to demonstrate that Jesus really is Messiah. That whatever our need is, Jesus Christ is the answer. And all of Jesus' miracles are designed that way. Like Jesus' miracles do two things every single time. First, they bring healing or wholeness or help or light to someone who is in need. They demonstrate in so doing that the kingdom of God is actually breaking through. As Jesus would say, that the kingdom of God is actually now among you. But the second thing Jesus' miracles are designed to do, and the more important thing Jesus' miracles are designed to do, is to prove that Jesus is the Christ who has come in the power of God, as God, to do the work of God. So the miracles of Jesus Christ are about helping us to identify that Jesus is the Messiah and to show us what his kingdom is like. A miracle is not just about the miracle itself. Because for this woman, even in our text this morning, even if she stands up straight for the rest of her earthly life, if she does not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, she will be lost for all eternity. Which is why even for us today, signs that wow people about the Lord are never enough. As we'll see later, by the time Jesus gets to the cross, there is just a tiny group of people who are faithful who remain, who actually look through the miracle and see, ah, Jesus is the Christ. And that's the point. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Today, just as he was 2,000 years ago, when this happened, that we might trust him, that we might turn to him, that we might believe in him, that we might see his compassion and be drawn to him, 
that we would see the contrast between our own sin and the glory and the perfection and the holiness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is not a text just about a miracle. It's not a text of how to get a miracle. Be at the right place at the right time. Right? Show up at the synagogue where Jesus is. Be out front. Make a scene. Dress in something brightly colored so that he'll, you'll catch his eye. Because Jesus didn't always heal people who had needs. Potentially there were some here that had needs that Jesus did not heal. In fact, later... When Jesus heals at the pool of Bethesda, there's a whole bunch of people who are laying around in physical need, needing healing, and Jesus actually steps around them and over them and through them to heal one man. This is a text about proving to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we may believe and that in believing we may have life in his name. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.